DC Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DC Public Library. You're listening to DC Public Library podcast recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. This is Memories on Tap, where we highlight the stories of people who use the Memory Lab, the library's DIY digital preservation space. I'm your host, Robert LaRose, and I'm a librarian in the labs at DCPL. As part of the lab's department at MLK Library, we have a do-it-yourself workstation for digitizing video and audio recordings in a variety of formats and for scanning photographs, 35 millimeter slides, and negatives. This space is known as the Memory Lab. Since 2016, residents of the DC area have been using the lab to save the memories contained in their precious personal items. You can learn more by visiting dclibrary.org slash labs slash memory lab. So the purpose of this series is to feature the stories of people who have used the memory lab to preserve their precious personal collections. My guest today is Emily Wagner. So um, thank you again for being here. And I guess to start off, can you just give a little bit of a background about yourself and what initially brought you to the Memory Lab? Sure, absolutely. Um, My name is Emily Wagner, and I don't know if, if Robert, I mentioned this earlier, but it's kind of a cheat. I am a librarian also. So, um, yeah, so (laughs) I got really into um, using the Memory Lab because in general, I was interested in the kind of the trend in libraries across the country, really, and wanted to see what was happening in my hometown. Um, and the reason why I got into it is because I, you know, much like other people, I inherited and became the keeper of all of my family's photos and um, old videos on like the 35 millimeter and just, you know, a, a massive amount of stuff, actually, just kind of a staggering amount of objects. So I was excited about figuring out a way to both manage it and share it across the across the family. What does your library work entail? Do you work at a a public library or academic library or what kind of work? So such a good question. I'm actually not in the library world anymore. I took a short sabbatical. I used to work for the American Library Association where I was really involved with advocacy communications here in D.C., um, the D.C. office of ALA is the is the lobbying arm of the association. Um, my joke was that I worked for big books and I did that for about <laughs> four years. I really enjoyed it. And I've always been in advocacy communications. Um, I worked for a, a large research think tank before ALA. And now I'm, I'm still in advocacy communications, just a, a different industry. Um, I work for the National Head Start Association, so advocating for early childhood education and care for low-income families. Oh, okay. Very nice. Very yeah, cool. it's good. It's, it's a very interesting time to be in advocacy right now. So even, even cooler than it, it usually is. Yeah, I would imagine so. 
definitely. So, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to make an embedded library joke, which is essentially that I do consider myself wherever I go uh, a librarian, no matter what my role is really. Today, in fact, we were just chatting on um, on a work G-chat and I found a new database that I wanted our government affairs team to start to use. And someone said, are you librarianing us right now? And I said, yes, in fact, I am. <laughs> So I, you know, I feel like I spend a lot of time getting really enthusiastic about resources, no matter where I sit. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, once you you catch the librarian bug, it's hard to uh, lose that that kind of urge or that interest. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what um, what kind of stuff did you have that you brought to the lab? So mostly photos. Um, yeah, actually, I think almost exclusively photos, many of which were really old. Um, some were over 100 years old, which was kind of um, cool, really delicate stuff. So that was definitely something that um, was a learning curve for me. Um, I haven't, I, I still have the 35 millimeter at my house. So that's the next thing I plan to tackle is trying to convert that into something we can actually watch. We have, gosh, like 30 canisters of it. And no way of playing it. I know. I tried to buy a projector off of eBay, something that we could play it on. And um, I tried twice, actually. And I couldn't get it to work. So I have to figure out uh, how to convert it at this point. So it doesn't... I forget what you call that when something is... Um, when you buy, like, the original media player to play the thing, there's a term for that, isn't there? Well, yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but, like, there are software emulators but that's specifically in the software world i don't know if that's what you're talking about like emulation yeah emulation or using like um or like retro a, retro yeah like using a vhs to play a vhs player right mm -hmm. even though that's not something anyone's done since 1992 in yeah. real life right cool so you you still have 35 millimeter slides to digitize mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And you're still kind of in the middle of your the the larger project. That's right. Yeah. So I started with photos because it felt more approachable, and it was. It was actually just um, you know a, a little bit of a learning curve. But then once you kind of get the instruction from DCPL staff and you get into the groove of it, it becomes something that becomes um, sort of meditative. Actually, just this the sitting and the scanning and you know organizing them primarily. Um, but I haven't, yeah, crossed the bridge to other types of media yet. Yeah, I've heard other people describe it the same way, that it's a meditative process. Yeah, that... I imagine you see lots of different folks coming in with lots of different projects. Absolutely, yeah, and all age ranges too. You know, a lot of the people that use the lab tend to be retired, you know, so they have more time, they can come in during the week during the day and they have stuff that belong to maybe some family members that are no longer with them and it's just kind of sitting there and they want to a lot of them want to clear out space to declutter sort of mm -hmm. which i always tell people and you probably can relate to this as because we are focusing on it is personal archiving we um promote the idea of keeping the original. So you're not really digitizing stuff with the goal of getting rid of the original, but it's just copying it, mm -hmm. proliferating it to a different medium so that 
it's harder for it to get destroyed. Um, but yeah, a lot of people want to declutter. Um, but then, of course, it's a lot of younger people as well who are given stuff by their parents or grandparents, and they want it to be shared more easily with other family members. Yeah, that's exactly my experience. And the idea of um, the originals getting destroyed was so front of mind for me because we have, for example, all of these newspaper articles. One of my great aunts was a professional dancer. So we have all of these clips of her and, you know, her brochures from um, her brochures or flyers or playbills from all of the dances she did. And they're all, you know, crumbling at this point. So it's even, even if it wasn't like a natural disaster related thing, just like a little bit of humidity or a strong breeze and those would be the end of those pieces. So yeah, creating a, a backup copy was really critical because otherwise it would be lost and they're great photos. Cool. So what were all of the photos that you had from a hundred years ago or what did it kind of span multiple decades of the family history? Yeah, it spanned, I think um, we were lucky. My family was lucky on my dad's side, at least to have photography like throughout all the generations. So I had photos um, of my great, great grandparents all the way to my parents in there. Um, my, my dad and his sisters when they were teens so probably, gosh, like the 1850s to the 1950s um, was the range. Yeah, that a really is good collection. A really great uh, time frame to cover. Mm -hmm. In the 1850s, photography was, of course, around, but it, I don't think it was really widely accessible at that point. So yeah. were those older family members, I mean, family members from longer ago, were they photographers by trade? Is that why you have photos or how did they? No, they were in the lumber industry, which is <laughs> not close to photography at all, um, but they were portraits. So it was just pictures, you know, of the bust up or the, you know, those photos where they were sitting all as a family with, mm -hmm. you know, the dark clothes and their Sunday best, that, that kind of, so they nobody's were smiling. Nobody is smiling. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we had, two or three of those, you know, at different stages in the family and of a couple of different iterations um, that, yeah, that have just been around for a long time. I see. Well, that's really lucky that you, you can, that you still had them around mm -hmm. to save like 150, well, at this point, 170 years old. That's really yeah, special. Absolutely. And um yet another reason to be grateful for publicly accessible <laughs> digitization tools because they've been, you know, they've lived in so many different houses and so many different environments over the years that I can't imagine they're going to be around for another 170. Um, and it's, it, they're photos that, you know, they've been kept and sort of carried through time by individuals uh, across the family, but there are many folks who haven't seen them, you know, ever or more than a couple of times across our family. So it was cool to get the digital copies and I dropped them in our family iCloud account and now everybody has them on their phone to be able to look at or pull up or study. Um, and yeah, it, it's just such a nice way to make them something that uh, contributes to our, our family conversations versus something that just gets passed on, you know, by chance between, between people and, you know, between the people who are most likely to be the, the keepers, you know, it, it's not only the keepers who should be the, the users and the consumers. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
So you said you have a family iCloud account. Is that mm -hmm. the primary way that you share the photos with family members? Yeah, the family iCloud account's my main strategy. We've talked a lot about, especially over the course of, you know, being at home for so long in these last 18 to 20 months, we've talked a lot about doing a family slideshow or some sort of family, um, you know, uh, showing, I guess, or viewing of all of these digitized pieces, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. That's when I went down the rabbit hole of trying to buy a projector and trying to buy all this like legacy format um, vehicles and uh, really, yeah, really went down the eBay rabbit hole. And honestly, it'll be what brings me back to DCPL eventually, because that's, it is truly the best way to to convert that stuff and to be able to enjoy it. Cause we'd, yeah, we'd really like to do as a family, some kind of viewing and some kind of sort of storytelling session now that we have all of these great visuals. Yeah. Uh, but for now we're just looking at them sort of individually on our own devices. That would be great. And then when you do get together, you could record everybody kind of like an oral history thing. And That's then right. that would be yet another thing to have to preserve. Definitely. <laughs> it's just a, a never ending cycle, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, on my, so the family photos and the, the long history that's been visually documented is on my dad's side. On my mom's side, they were um, less, less photographed over the years, but I do have a really beautiful written history that I inherited from my grandmother on that side, which was another piece, actually, now that I think about what I digitized in the lab, um, was another piece that I, I scanned, actually. So it's like a four page, um, typewriter piece of of family you know chronology I suppose so folks coming over from Ireland moving to Prince Edward Island and then getting into Springfield Massachusetts that was my mom's family's arc and it was the four sisters of that family who got together one day and just decided you know if we don't write this down it will get lost to the sands of time and so I it's been in a manila envelope for probably longer than I've been alive just you know traveling between aunts. Um, and I, gosh, I inherited it about 10 years ago and it sat in a shoebox for, you know, for a long time. And then I brought it to the lab and now we have the digital copy. So I was able to send it to all of the, the sisters and cousins on that side as well. So there's just, just more than one copy really is the idea. Um, otherwise we would completely, and I actually, I'm also really into ancestry.com. So I was using that document to match against kind of the way that um, I was piecing together the family tree on that side. So a really nice way to support the other kind of research I was doing. Very cool. Yeah. Um, something that I've noticed as a result of working with people in the memory lab is how different families are in terms of what they, what kind of media they collect. Mm -hmm. um, so like you said, your father's side was more photographic and then your mom's side was more, I guess we could say, call them narrative focused. You know, they wanted to write things down and record memory that way rather than through the visual, or I mean the, you know, pictographic element. Yeah. Um, like for instance, my father's side tended to be more musical. So I have more real to real audio recordings from them. Cool. Awesome. Whereas with my mom's side, it tends to be more photographic and different people, you know, some people had video cameras. Um, some people 
tended to only do, you know, it, it's amazing how different families prioritize what to keep. And so interesting, I think, how much is influenced by the culture of the family, right? Like, none of my family is musical on any level. Um, so audio recordings would have never really been, it's just not a tool we had at our house, but so cool to think that you can listen back to the voices of the folks who have, who, who have spoken to you throughout your entire life. Yeah. Have I mean, you been, have, have you been archiving that stuff? I have, I have actually when last year, when our, um, when the library was actually closed completely, we didn't have any buildings, any of our locations open. I did spend a lot of time digitizing both the audio recordings and then some of the eight millimeter um, film, like movie film mm -hmm. from one of my uncles. And most of that stuff is from the fifties and sixties, um, both on the video, the film side and the audio side, but from two different sides of the family. Very um, cool. And yeah, I mean, I have, recordings of my father as a toddler, my grandfather, his father, um, reading the Dr. Seuss story to him as a kid, and also of my grandfather singing, and of my great-grandfather, who I never met, singing as well. Wow. There, there was a lot of singing in the family. How, um, first of all, how special is that? Um, just the, the legacy of musicality between all of you, and just having a recording of two generations back on sound is, is stunning. Actually. It's very yeah. cool. Yeah. I, I am very glad. I feel very fortunate to have those, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is. It's just so interesting to see, like you said, the depending on a family's culture, they're going to save different things or even also document different kinds of events. Like maybe some people travel a lot, so they only will take pictures or stuff when there's a family vacation or something, whereas other people will record stuff just randomly happening around the house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It all depends. Yeah. And yeah, being able to see what folks value and what kind of you know tools they have, it's just a really beautiful look at both the stories we want to tell and the, you know, the ways we were able to tell those stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Over the course of, of digitizing those photos, did you find anything that was unexpected or maybe something from your childhood or something that, or something that you had heard about and maybe remembered differently or that you experienced and remembered differently than how it was represented in the photos? It's a great question. I think for me, especially because, um, so I've inherited all of these photos, but I actually didn't spend a significant amount of time with a lot of these people on my dad's side. Many of them passed before I was through my toddlerhood. Um, so it's, it's so interesting, the early, early memories I have of, you know, playing in the garden or their pets or, you know, the layout of their living room are vivid in my mind. And I'm, um, you know, able to recall them with others, even though, you know, I was two or three or four in those times, because I have all of these really beautiful fragments um, in this collection. So I think one thing that surprises me is just, um, yeah, in general, how well, how well documented it all was. Um, I don't know if it's because my 
my dad and my grandfather were both sort of amateur photographers or if it was just, you know, they had the cameras and used them with gusto. But yeah, it really does. Um, it, it, I guess the thing that was a delight about it was the fact that even though I was so small, those relationships are really vivid to me. And, and it's really primarily because of the way they were so well documented. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, I guess uh, documentation or record keeping, I guess we could say, sort of runs in your family. Yeah, Probably you know, I. You, <laughs> exactly. You know, I never thought about it that way. But yeah, there were a lot of documenters in the folks that I grew up with, most certainly, which I guess is what made it necessary for one of us to be an organizer. Mm -hmm. So, I do think. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I do think quite a lot. Um, I, I just had a kid about um, six months ago. I had a baby. And I. Gosh, thank you. Yeah, I take a lot of photos of her. And they're all, you know, on my phone. So I have been thinking quite a bit about what kind of inheritance she'll have in terms of the documentation, because right now it's all, I mean, they're not digital surrogates, right? They're, they're the photos, the originals, but yeah, there's born digital. Yeah, born digital. And there's so many. So I do, I'll be so curious to see, not that I'm, you know, really trying to manage the way I'm passing it along to her right now. I'm just sort of taking photos in the moment and trying to, you know, find the new balance. But I do really wonder what um, what a difference it'll make to have uh, that many photos of, of herself and if they'll actually ever make it to her, you know, in, in what form they'll make it to her. I'm using, have you ever heard of the One Second app? No, I don't think I have. It's a, it's a cool little tool. Um, you essentially take one second of video every day over the course of a year. And so you see this really um, quick montage, essentially, of progress over the course of a year. Uh, the guy who invented it was one of those sort of um, live in the moment, make every moment count sort of ethos person kind of people. And um, I've been doing it with her. So it's been interesting just to see just, you know, how fast babies change, you know, how little she was up until now has been kind of cool to see on that one second video, um, organizer, but the sheer volume of photos and video that I've been taking every day is out of control. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause it's so much easier now. Yeah, it is. To, it is. to capture things. Easier and maybe harder. I I'd be so curious from your vantage point, like, what your forecast for the future is going to be, you know, given that we're going to have such a volume of photos, how will that change the, the lab a hundred years from now? And what will people be coming in for? <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. Sometimes it scares me to think about that, but uh, <laughs> just to, I mean, seeing the, the rapid rate of change and on such a massive scale in my lifetime alone to be able to forecast that far ahead is just, I, I think it's beyond our, the scope of our brains, but um, yeah, the it, it's, I guess it's easier to capture stuff, but harder to organize it now. Yeah. Yeah. Harder to organize it. And I imagine harder to do meaning making, right? Like these, um, these collections I've inherited the written and the visual have all been, um, attempts to make meaning I think out of things that have happened and most especially the the written narrative from my mom's side like there's a real style to it and a real um sort of sensibility to the kind of story that they're telling in that documentation and I think that's because it was you know they were 
developing a narrative. But if we have such a huge volume of, of materials now, whatever the materials format might be, it's going to be much harder to make and develop and pass on a narrative just due to sheer volume. Yeah. And that's, I mean, even though a hundred years, I agree with you that trying to answer a question about what will, what will we be doing to organize files a hundred years from now is beyond our, our scope to really forecast, but we're still, I think as humans going to try to make meaning, certainly that's our nature. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of tools there are for meaning making activities, you know, down the road, especially in public spaces. Sure. Well, naturally, as a librarian, you know that one of those tools would be metadata, for sure. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. making sure that everything is written, you know, the written documentation of things that don't have a written component, um, or even things that do have a written component, like your um, your aunt's letter, mm -hmm. your you know, the written history of your family having that extra documentation about those objects helps um, people see or understand the meaning of it, and especially for your family members down the road. For sure. Can I ask a meta question about this podcast? Sure. <laughs> Do you think the audience, this audience, or generally folks who aren't in the library space, do you think that there's a good understanding of metadata? Well, that's a great question. It's something that we we definitely talk about when we give trainings here at the lab. I think if you don't, it's something that I think a lot of people, most people can understand, but it's just not something that you think about if you aren't dealing with, you know, looking at catalog records or looking stuff up for people every day you don't think about it, even though people do create metadata all the time. Um, yeah. I mean, you could argue that balancing your checkbook is in a way a form of metadata mm -hmm. you know, because you're recording data about what you're doing with your money. So that's a good way. If you talk about it like that, people will say, oh yeah, that makes sense. I create metadata all day long. Yeah. yeah. I wrote, I wrote who is on, who's in the picture on the back of the picture. Well, yeah, that makes sense. But um, what I think does get more confusing is translating that to the digital form. Mm -hmm. You know, embedding metadata with files, then you start to get, you start to lose people. You're really in the deep bit. end. Yeah. How do people react when you introduce the idea I, I think, well, the, the, if you just say metadata, it seems like kind of a, a weird, scary word. But if you talk about it, you know, this is, if you show people, look, you have a photo that has this stuff written on it, that's metadata. All we have to do is copy that onto the digital form so that it'll be tied to your file, just like that is. And... I don't know. I, I, I think sometimes people react in a way that makes it seem like it's not, they don't think it's that important to them. Like they don't need to worry about it. But I usually say, well, don't you want your family members down the line to know who you are in these photos? 
Because otherwise, you know, generally, if people have a bunch of photo or something that they're bringing in, if they can't recognize people in the photo, they won't bother saving it, which, I mean, that makes sense because maybe you can't save everything. So just framing it in a way that by taking the time to add this stuff, you're making it more meaningful for people down the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therefore... I guess making your own existence in all of these things more meaningful. Yeah, that's very compelling. I think it's, I think you're right that the idea of metadata is like, I, it can feel like you're just trying to brush something away in order to see the actual project that you thought you were coming to tackle versus trying to create this uh, like other infrastructure for it. But I love the idea of you saying, you know, here's the the name of the photo of the person on the back. That's, that's what we're trying to get here. Um, and you want to tie those two things together. I think that's really approachable. I could kill for some metadata on some of the photos that I've been hearing, but I'll just never know who those folks are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I think it's hard. As soon as you get people over the initial hump of realizing that it is important and that, they need to do it then they're like oh yeah that's easy i'll i'll it makes sense mm-hmm. but um it's hard to get people to realize that it's important i guess yeah yeah it's a time a time commitment i suppose so there's mm-hmm. they're making this huge effort to spend time on um on something that you know I mean, archiving or digitizing or changing the format of of something is uh, like an extra step, right, in the first place. So then on top of that step, there's yet another step that they might not have anticipated in the first place. So, yeah, it's it's cool to hear how you navigate that conversation because it's definitely one that I imagine some folks are surprised by. Yeah, and I think maybe people who don't, who are surprised by it, I don't think maybe I don't think they realize the the actual purpose of coming into the lab, mm-hmm. um, especially people who want to get rid of the originals. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like a, a, a cleaning house sort of thing to do, a decluttering tool. Um, but when you frame it in a way that it's it's, you know, copying things, replicating them so that they will be harder to destroy, harder to lose, then I think they they realize the importance of metadata. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, being able to access and, yeah, access the memory in particular. Exactly. So do you have um, anybody else in your family that is interested in this sort of work, who's interested in keeping things preserved for generations down the line? Yes and no. I think folks are generally um, really generous in their enthusiasm for the final product. <laughs> they mm-hmm. they really like what happens and how to sort through it and to look through all of the you know tagged photos. I definitely tag everything in iCloud in a very specific way. Should they want to see just one slice of um, one slice of the family or one slice of time. Um, but very few folks, I think, are interested in tackling it 
at the same, you know, alongside me. I think they, they've been carrying these boxes over the course of their, you know, many years um, as stewards of it, but I've never really known what to do. It's intimidating to get, you know, eight boxes of whatever the format is. And then to think to yourself, oh, I'm all of a sudden, you know, responsible for these extremely sentimental objects. So I think a lot of folks are just like, thank Godspeed, good, good work. (laughs) Thank you for doing it. But they've, um, yeah, they've, they're, there's more of a sense of relief than there is a sense that they want to jump in to. I hope that doesn't sound too negative. Yeah, no, I don't think at all. It sounds very realistic to me. Um, Yeah, because it is time intensive and it takes a lot of work. And, but then also you, uh, well, you have a lot of power (laughs) if, if your family is trusting you with stuff, it's a big responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think a, a big barrier for a lot of people is just not knowing how to organize stuff. Even if they're organized in other parts of their life, um, they don't know how to approach organization with this kind of stuff. Especially when there are so many discrete pieces. I think that's definitely, at least when I think about um, even how I'm sort of tackling the chapters of the things that I've been up to, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of really small pieces of, of memory and ephemera and storylines. I think any person would look at it and think to themselves, gosh, this is, this mountain is too tall to climb because of just how many pieces there are of it. And I do think it's, it's, um, I'm kind of, I'm dwelling on your comment about how much power there is in being a keeper of family history. I think there's power in it, but there's also opportunity. Um, I think one of the joys of, of being the person who's taken on this family work is that I get to ask a lot of really great questions that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to ask. And often the, um, the questions dive into topics in the family that are below the surface. So it's not so much about, you know, what did you do during this holiday or what was so-and-so's favorite subject in school? You know, these really basic fact things. It's, you know, what was happening in this photo and why does that person look like this? And who is this person who's not in any other photos? Like we really do get to dive into stories that otherwise wouldn't have been told. And that's also why I got into doing amateur um, genealogy stuff. You know, I'm barely uh, calling myself an amateur is, is I think generous, you know, I've been doing it though, because otherwise the questions weren't being asked. So it was really a vehicle for us to say, Oh, right. These two people were married. That's where this um, family came from. There are three second cousins on that side, just the process of, you know, everybody comparing their memories while we have the opportunity is as the idea here and um yeah otherwise there wouldn't have been the chance to do it so not so much i mean power for sure in that it's it's powering us to compare notes <laughs> but but more so just the 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 pure um space really to be able to have these conversations has been the part of it that's been so energizing i love when some photo or maybe it's a, a movie um, being taken of what seems like a, a run-of-the-mill standard event or something um, or some kind of celebration, maybe a party or something. It seems very 
like on the surface, and then you capture something that makes people go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, wh why do they look like this in this picture? What are they, what are they looking at that person like that for? Mm -hmm. that, I, I really do enjoy that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a less volume of photos on my maternal side, but there are so many pictures where there are six children in my mom's one of six siblings. And some of them will be looking in a photo in one direction and others in another direction. And their facial expressions will be the opposite. You know, some people looking happy, other people looking stern. And you're thinking to yourself, who's on the other side of the camera? And, you know, why does everybody look like that? And yeah, there's just so many instances where you can really, if you, you know, take the time to observe it and take the time to put it in a format where everybody has access and time, um, you can dig a little deeper into the dynamics and really start to unpack what, what actually was happening in the past and how does that influence us today? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'm glad you mentioned or you you talked about who is on the other side of the, the camera because something that we don't talk a lot about um, is the effect of the, the person recording the event on what they're recording. So it's really important, although I, I feel like in a lot of the stuff that I see, it's a lot of people don't necessarily know who, if you ask them, who's taking this photo or who took this photo, who took the video, they think, oh, well, it might have been, you know, they, they talk about it must have been somebody who wasn't in the shot, mm -hmm. but who was probably there at the time, but they're not really sure who it was a lot of the time. But that's right. really important. Another piece of metadata that's really important to know too, who actually recorded this event because yeah, it's there ultimately it was their decision what got represented. Absolutely. The power of the creator. Mm -hmm. And I guess in, in the real sense of, you know, intellectual property, if we wanted to look at it in that direction, they are the person who made the, the image in the first place or the film or the audio file. So interesting, it actually never really occurred to me until just this moment. It's interesting that the creator in a lot of these um, sets of collections that you you see day in and day out at the library is probably the, the piece that the piece of metadata that's most often missing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, most of the photos that I have um, from family gatherings, whatever, uh, do not have my mother in them because mm. you she was the one taking the pictures because she didn't want to be in them. Hmm. She didn't want to be photographed. Interesting. Um, so the people, a lot of the time, it seems that the people who are most interested in recording things don't want to be recorded themselves. Huh, that's so interesting. Just on the topic of moms and photos in this, uh, in this day and age, there's this whole, um, movement right now of proof of mom instead of proof of life so it's getting it's a movement to have other people take pictures of moms and their kids um, or parents and their kids so that the parents actually get documented because so often they're the ones who are taking the photos right the caregivers don't often end up in the photo with the kiddo um, or the the person that they're taking care of because they're 
you know, busy creating the world around them. So yeah, there's this big, there's this big movement in the sort of mom digital space about proof of taking proof of mom photos that, like, you know, you, you as a mom, you as a parent, you as a caregiver exist. Hmm. That is yeah. interesting. Little, just beaming a little new mom info your way. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting. It's always interesting to see how, well, parenting in general is changing over the ages. That mm-hmm. would be a whole other topic. <laughs> Truly. Open this podcast. But, um, yeah. Well, um, I always like to finish by asking um, whoever I'm interviewing what their earliest memory is, if you happen to know it. Some mm-hmm. people have a very clear image of what that is. Other people are kind of reaching deep down into the bag and then they pull up something that they think, Oh yeah, this is probably it, but they're not sure, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I, if I'm sure about what my very earliest memory is. Um, so I think I'd be more of a reach into the bag, uh, answer. If that's, that's fine too. Yeah. Um, I remember, so one of the photos actually that I digitized at the library is one uh, memory that I, I keep with me fairly often. Um, I remember helping my grandmother in their house in the mid-Atlantic in Delaware uh, with her garden. And she had um, <laughs> she had all of these impatience and all of this dirt out by out on the patio that we were like, you know, taking in and taking out. And I was wearing these red shoes that later on, actually, when I was looking at that photo with my sister, she reminded me that those shoes were several sizes too small for me, but that I wouldn't take them off. They were my favorite shoes ever. And so when you, there's two photos, one of us and all the flowers and us repotting them and one with me with my zoom in on the shoes, which I took um, with all the, the flowers around. So that is definitely an early memory of mine for sure. And it's nice to have it documented. Interesting. Yeah. Do you remember, or do you know how old you were? At mm, gosh, probably three, three or four. Okay. And, you know, that's the second time I think you've mentioned uh, gardens or gardening during mm-hmm. this conversation. Did, did you, was your family uh, very into gardening? A family of gardeners, most certainly. Yeah, on both sides. Uh, lots of folks who are interested in, um, yeah, cultivating beautiful spaces so you in spend- nature, really. You spent a lot of time around the garden, and was that a big part of your childhood, or I guess family gatherings in general? Yeah, even to this day, I was actually just visiting my dad uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the primary thing we talked about was his garden and his compost. It's really, uh, yeah, a big topic at our house. Cool. Very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Well, thank you again for this conversation and taking the time to talk about all of this stuff. Thank you. This was fun. You have just listened to an episode of Memories on Tap on DC Public Library podcast recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. To see all the events we are currently offering at the labs, visit bit.ly slash labs classes. To receive email updates about the labs, go to bit.ly slash labs dash email.
To learn about additional programs being offered by DCPL, visit dclibrary.org slash calendar. Thank you for listening and be sure to join us next time. You just tuned into DC Public Library podcast. Listen and subscribe at dclibrary.org forward slash podcast or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.